0: Blackest night falls from the skies. The darkness grows as all light dies. We crave your hearts and your demise. By my black hand, the dead shall rise. Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete where we're running through untold tales of blackest night number one a story within a story spanning two decades. I'm not going to keep you but plays need players and this one's got a few. Leading off is the keeper of the book of parallax and one of Sinestro's most trusted lieutenants Lisa Drack. Lisa Drack first appeared in Green Lancer volume 4 number 18 in May of 2007. He's about 5'6", with red eyes, black hair, and light blue skin. Drak is a member of the Sinestro Corps and one of the few recruited by Sinestro personally. In the Green Lantern mythos, the universe is divided up into 3,600 sectors. Lisa Drax patrolled sector 3,500, so she spent a lot of time on the edge of the universe. Her role in the Sinestro Corps was twofold. First, as keeper of the Sinestro Corps' Book of Parallax, which held the history of the Corps and its members. And second, to force new Sinestro Corps recruits who managed to pass the intense boot camp, into her fear lodge to face their greatest fears. If the recruits failed, she recorded it in the Book of Parallax. If they succeeded, they went on to join the Sinestro Corps. Drax's abilities include emotional empathy, which doesn't sound like a superpower, but you'd be surprised. She's a gifted seer and can seduce people through her storytelling. Her tales throughout the Sinestro War and Blackest Night are honestly some of the best work in the series and give a great classic horror comic book vibe to the stories when, if you're a corps honed in on fear as your bread and butter, Can't be a bad thing. If you thought the main episode this week was a menagerie, what if I told you there's a one-man-walking zoo in the world of D.C.? Well, that's what I'm telling you. I'm talking about none other than Bernard Buddy Baker. I'm talking about... (laughs) Animal Man. Bernard Buddy Baker first appeared in Strange Adventures number 180 in September of 1965. Fun fact, I love Animal Man for no other reason than his number one issue of his solo title was the first comic book I ever bought with my own money. For that reason alone, that's it. You know I'm easy. Don't act surprised. Back to Animal Man during this story is based in Montana. He's 5'11", 172 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes. He's a stuntman and adventurer. Buddy Baker received his powers from a mystical force known as the Red that connects all animals. He didn't know this at first, believing he was abducted by aliens because of the illusions the Red left him with. He eventually discovered the truth after deciding to become a superhero as the Red wanted anyway and Buddy Baker, Animal Man was born. Using his newfound powers, he became an outspoken champion of animal rights and when not adventuring or helping to save the world, can legitimately be classified as an eco-terrorist, disrupting and in some cases destroying cruel and inhumane companies that target animals. Animal Man has a wife named Ellen. A son named Cliff and a daughter named Maxine. His powers? He can mimic the ability of any animal on Earth for up to 30 minutes at a time. This of course can greatly increase his physical strength, speed, agility, reflexes, durability. He has the gift of flight. He can channel electricity like an eel, regenerate like the worm, and wall crawl like THE Amazing Spider-Man. He can also fire force blasts is able to read the minds of animals, transfer his consciousness into other animals, and in some instances, control animals moving on next we have rory reagan but you may know him from his superheroing name ragman what do you mean no he was in the shadow pack our first absolute point we went over this no for shazam no they fought the specter well actually to be fair he didn't do much in that battle to help did he no black alice kind of carried it well okay rory reagan ragman ragman first debuted in ragman first series number one in september of 1976 He's 5 feet 11 inches and weighs 165 pounds. He has blue eyes and brown hair. Ragman's origin story before being updated for the modern day, turning him into a soldier. is pretty interesting to me. Jewish people of 16th century Prague to escape persecution created a golem of river clay to protect them. But they didn't feel safe with the golem, so they decided to replace it with a human defender who wore rags blessed by a verse from the Kabbalah. The Ragman suit was sewn to protect the Warsaw ghetto if it was ever needed. During World War II, it clearly was, and a young Jewish German named Jerzy Reganowicz became Ragman to protect the Jewish community in Warsaw from the Nazis. Jerzy failed and migrated to America. He took the name Jerry Reagan and passed the Ragman suit down to his son, you guessed it, Rory. Rory now uses the suit to protect the slums of Gotham. I think it's interesting that rabbis didn't trust the golem, stone golems are a huge component of Jewish folklore. In the Nobel Prize winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, the main character flees Germany in a hidden compartment beneath a heavy golem, and when he becomes a comic book artist in New York, his first hero he creates that's successful is a golem. I think Benjamin Grimm, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, two Jewish men, is a modern representation of the golem. I know this thing was one of Jack Kirby's favorite characters, and I wonder if that was subconscious or intentional. Either way, his heritage shines through in his work, and the world is better for it. Back to Ragman's abilities. His costume grants him superhuman strength, speed, and agility. The Big Three, the basic foundation of any superhuman. I'm going to start calling that the Big Three from now on. He can't fly, but he has the ability to float on air. And the Ragman suit claims the souls of the wicked by wrapping them up in its patchwork. In the Shadow Pact series, Ragman states that a person trapped in a suit is serving penance, that they have to contribute to granting him powers until they're absolved for their sins and allowed to pass on into the afterlife. The person devoured by the suit doesn't have to kick in to grant Rory powers, but they can never escape until they are absolved. So eventually, everybody kicks in. It's an interesting power. I like Ragman's abilities a lot. Next, we have the original Wonder Girl <laughs> Donna Hinckley Stacey Troy, which is Donna Troy works too. Troy first appeared in The Brave in the Bowl number 60 in July of 1965. She's 5 feet 9 inches tall and 143 pounds with blue eyes. When she's not adventuring, she's a photographer. The Donna Troy in this story's origin is simple. She was originally made from clay, like a golem, and brought to life using a piece of Wonder Woman's own soul when Wonder Woman was just a girl to be her sister and playmate. But she was kidnapped and then put into a loop of time where she lived alternate lives over and over with each ending in tragedy. She was born as a baby and put up for adoption in the life leading up to this issue. She was raised by Rhea, who was a Titan of myth, and grew up on New Cronus where she received her powers, was given the name Troy, returned to Earth, took the name Donna in homage to the original World War II Wonder Woman, and founded the original Teen Titans. In a fight with a rogue Superman robot, she was killed. But of course, what's death in comics? And when she returned post-crisis, she realized she is one of the few people in the DC universe who remembered the DC multiverse. Donna Troy is a powerhouse. Her skills are super strength, speed, and flight. She can coax the truth from people by speaking to them with no need of a lasso, like her older sister, and in my DC Encyclopedia it says, quote, trained warrior, respected and admired by everyone she worked with. Translation? Shorty get it in on that battlefield. Or, I'm glad she's on our side. The iteration of Donna Troy for this story wears one of DC's dopest costumes. It's a one piece black cat suit, but that's not it. Relax. It's because the universe is reflected in the cat suit. It's Wonderful to look at. Next up, you know him, you'd love him if he didn't just douse you with his fear gas and have you shitting yourself right now. I'm talking about the man so good at instilling fear he barely feels it anymore himself. It barely even gets me to normal. I'm talking about Dr. Jonathan Crane, but you may know him better as The Scarecrow. Scarecrow first appeared in World's Finest Comics, Volume 1, Number 3, in the fall of 1941. He's six feet even and 140 pounds, so he's a lanky dude. He has green eyes and brown hair and I think this is the first time I described a white comic character who didn't have blonde hair or blue eyes or both. Good for you, Crane. Jonathan Crane came from an abusive family. His mom died when he was very young and his father, a scientist obsessed with fear, used the young Jonathan as a puppet in his experiments. Experiments like hooking Jonathan up to a heart monitor and shoving him into a trapdoor filled with scary sculptures and items for hours at a time. Crane still managed to make something of himself despite his trauma, at least at first, becoming a professor of psychology but his methods scared the students and he was fired. He became a psychiatrist next, but after attacking a patient, had to give that up as well. He decided he'd be his true self next and donning the identity of the scarecrow, used his inherited obsession with inducing fear to terrorize the world as the scarecrow. Jonathan Crane, like many of the best bat villains, doesn't have any superpowers, but like many of the best bat villains, he has near genius level intellect. He's a brilliant chemist and psychiatrist and carries a host of weapons that release his unique fear toxin that causes his victims to experience their worst fears. Because of his extended exposure to his own toxins and upbringing, Crane himself has built up a resistance to the emotion of fear and seems to only feel it when going up against Batman himself. And our final spotlight is on another Sinestro Corps member, (laughs) Sil. There isn't much about her posted alone, but she's about 5'6 to 5'8 with black hair, light red skin, and black eyes. She travels constantly with three beasts constructed by her power ring. These beasts are exact replicas of a group of three space alien wolf creatures that she used to run with before becoming a yellow lantern. And that's the spotlights. And we've got the players. Here's the play. Before we just throw you into the story, you need to know where you are. So let's move on to our next segment. Where are you? Here. There is a long road to this bonus episode, so let's get right into it. Where are you? Here. Here. It all begins with DC's twisted Frankenstein version of the Fantastic Four. A space shuttle known as Excalibur commissioned by LexCorp was in orbit conducting radiation experiments when a massive solar flare hits the shuttle and breaks a contamination seal within the ship. Sirens go off and the ship crashes. All this happening and Superman was fighting brainwashing from Kryptonian technology known as the Eradicator that turned him into an emotionless juggernaut. He was able to break free of the Eradicator's control and taking the snazzy red and black suit the Eradicator created for him Superman throws it into the sun to ensure the technology can never corrupt him again. While this is happening, the crew of the Excalibur married couple Henry Hank Henshaw and his wife Terry Henshaw, the pilot Jim and young Hot Rod Steven are forced to pull an emergency landing of their shuttle. They crash in a forest and Terry and Hank seem to be okay except for the fact that Hank's hair has gone from brown to white, from head to eyebrows, but the Hot Rod Steven, he comes out of the shuttle as a light blue and purple creature of radiation screaming help me. Jim gets off worse, his consciousness, floating formlessly has grabbed nearby metal, gravel, and anything else it can find to assemble a makeshift body. They decide to head to Metropolis to LexCorp, hoping to fix their condition, with Hank thinking privately that he can feel the radiation eating him alive. They reach LexCorp and of course get into a misunderstanding fight with Superman. The fight ends and Superman agrees to help them find a way to cure themselves. But Steven goes rogue. Superman chases Steven, who flies off into the sun, saying he felt like it was where he belonged now, killing himself in the process. When Superman returns to Earth, he finds Hank, the skin melting from his bones, trying to find a way to save Terry, who is becoming intangible and shifting into another dimension. Hank begs Superman to save his wife's life before melting into literal dust. No good has come from these powers. Superman manages to save Terry, thanks to programming done by Hank before he died, but Jim, unable to cope with the physical pain of being transformed, kills himself. All this happens, and Superman can't help but wonder if him throwing the Eradicator into the sun caused the solar flare, but we know it didn't. In Adventures of Superman 468, Hank Henshaw returns, his consciousness upon the destruction of its body sync with the LexCorp mainframe and he uses it to construct a body made of metal for himself before promptly shutting down all electronics on the eastern seaboard. He goes to visit Terry, his wife, who's a shadow child of the person she once was, but his metal body frightens her and he flees, telling her he'll be back when he has a better body. Superman confronts him and realizing who he is says he'll take Hank to see Terry, but her therapist bursts in with cosmic comic timing, telling them that thanks to Hank's visit, she's fallen into a catatonic state. Henshaw abandons Earth and, taking over a Kryptonian shuttle Superman left in orbit, he tells Superman he's going to travel the universe, learning all he can. When Superman tries to stop him, he uses the Kryptonian technology to blast the Man of Steel. Henshaw travels planet to planet, learning all he can, but comes to the paranoid conclusion that Superman is responsible for the fate of the Excalibur crew when he discovers Superman threw the Eradicator into the Sun. His paranoia causes him to forget that he chose to leave Earth voluntarily, and believing now that he was forced off Earth by Superman, decides to plan his revenge. But a funny thing happened while Henshaw was traveling the universe. Superman was killed by Doomsday, leading into the Reign of the Superman storyline. Four men rose to claim the title of Man of Steel, John Henry Irons, you may know him as Steel, Shaquille O'Neal played him in a movie in the 90s at the height of his popularity, The Eradicator, a teenage Superman who would go on to become Superboy, and Hank Henshaw. Henshaw, unable to take revenge on Superman directly because, you know, guy was dead, decides to impersonate Superman and ruin his reputation. Using the technology found in the Kryptonian shuttle, he creates a cyborg body with Superman's face and after DNA checks, throwing Doomsday into space, and saving the president of the United States from an assassination attempt, the president decides he's the real Superman. Teaming up with alien warlord Mongol, actually more forcing Mongol to work for him than teaming up, Hank Henshaw, now going by cyborg Superman, fights the Eradicator above Green Lantern Hal Jordan's hometown of Coast City. Mongol and the cyborg plan to destroy the city in the first steps to build a new war world, Mongol's home planet where he reigns supreme. They succeed in destroying Coast City, killing seven million people and reducing it to ashes before they are stopped from destroying the entire planet by a reborn Superman, Superboy, Supergirl, and Steel. They bring the fight to Henshaw. Superman shoves a hand through the cyborg's chest while Hal Jordan wrecks Mongol. The day is saved, but seven million people are dead. Everyone Hal Jordan knew and loved, gone. The aftermath of this moment leads into Emerald Twilight and we shift our focus to Hal jordan after the fight with mongol his arm wrapped in a sling his pride and heart broken green lantern stares down on his knees at the crater that was his home coast city all that prologue and we leave the man of steel and move forward with Hal jordan in green lantern volume three number 48 jordan refusing to accept that seven million people are dead decides he's going to use his power ring to reconstruct coast city and how will power on best ever does the entire city Starting with his father, who chastises Hal after the Green Lantern says all he ever wanted was for his father to say he was proud of him. That he became a hero despite his dad thinking he was a space case. Hal's father, shades of green energy, throwing shade the whole way, says Hal, being a hero, didn't save Coast City, and promptly climbs into his jet, flies off, and crashes in front of Hal's eyes, forcing the Lantern to relive his childhood trauma. Hal conjures his mom next, who gives him sage advice about letting go of grief and holding on to memories. But Hal doesn't want memories. He's lost enough and wants his city back. He brings it back every street every person but it doesn't last he needs more power an emerald construct resembling the guardians comes to him and tells him that by using the ring for his own personal gain he's violated the rules of the green lanterns the construct tells him to surrender his ring and get ready because he's being transported to oa but how snaps he attacks the construct, absorbing its energy to power his ring, and flies off to Oa saying the Guardians wanted him to come back, but they won't like it when he arrives. This issue wraps with Kyle Rayner and his girlfriend Alexandra DeWitt, his girlfriend who would later be the catalyst for the coining of the phrase women in refrigerators, making their first appearance. In issue number 49, Hal Jordan proves why he is the best amongst Green Lantern. He defeats Kehan of the planet Varva and Lyra, the woman of Jade, leaving them for dead in the vacuum of space and stealing their power rings. Hal finds himself in another two-on-one battle, this time with fan favorite green rings, Tamar 2 and Jack T Chance, two of the more exceptionally skilled Green Lanterns. And Hal claims two more rings and keeps flying towards Oa. Creon of Tebis falls next, then Hanu of Overcron 6. Hal knocks two teeth out of Graftorin of Karak's mouth before taking his ring and keeps flying. He cuts off Boudica's hand, steals her ring, and keeps flying. Meanwhile, the Guardians, realizing they're in for some chop when Jordan hits Oa, start planning desperately to ready themselves against him. HAL runs into one of the strongest Green Lancers in the universe next, the drill instructor who trains all rookies, Kilowog, and they do battle. Now eight rings on his hands, nothing standing between HAL, Jordan, and Oa. He touches down and tells the Guardians he wants the central power battery, but the Guardians are ready for him and have one final opponent. Stepping out of the power battery in a hooded cloak, we see none other than Thal Sinestro. How's former mentor and Green Lantern, stripped of his ring and imprisoned in the power battery, thanks to Hal Jordan himself. Sinestro convinces Hal to drop the rings he's stolen and face him one on one, once and for all, to see who's the greatest light bearer in the universe. Hal takes seven rings off his hands. The two get into a brutal battle of will that devolves into a one on one fist fight. Hal wins, and Sinestro on his knees asks, Did you really win? Hal says he did, and saying he should have done this a long time ago, twists Sinestro's neck around to his back killing him how is about to enter the central power battery when he's sucker punched by none other than kilowog kilowog realizes he has to put how down and he tries makes it interesting too until how burns the flesh from his bones telling himself he doesn't deserve to wear the ring anymore how discards his own and heads into the central power battery but before he can enter he is surrounded by guardians he tells them there's no going back from what he's done he enters the central power battery and emerges in a form that will come to be known as parallax he crushes his power ring now not needed beneath his foot and flies off towards parts unknown. The Guardians in a last ditch effort to preserve the core give all their power to Gantt, a Guardian who long believed their cold distance from emotions made them weaker, not strong as they believed. Gantt picks up the crushed remains of Hal Jordan's ring and repairs it, flying off towards Earth to find the last ring bearer. Ganthet offers the ring to Guy Gardner, previously Hal Jordan's backup, who is wielding Sinestro's yellow ring, but Guy declines after leading a strike team to Oa and failing to subdue Parallax. Ganthet approaches Kyle Rayner in an alley next and gives him Hal Jordan's ring telling Kyle he has to do what must be done, but not saying what that is at all. Next time we see Parallax, it's in the Zero Hour storyline, where he teamed up with a villain known as Extent to rewrite the universe in his image. He stopped and shot through the chest with an arrow by none other than his best friend, Oliver Queen, better known the world over as Green Arrow. I'd go more into depth, but this storyline was more about correcting the continuity mistakes caused by Crisis on Infinite Earths than genuine storytelling for the Green Lantern mythos, in my opinion. The next time we see how Jordan has Parallax is in the final night storyline released in the back end of 1996. An extraterrestrial known as the Sun Eater does exactly what its name suggests and eats the sun. Parallax, in a moment of redemption, uses his great power to reignite the sun and save our universe. Shortly after how Jordan is tapped to become the Spectre, God's spirit of vengeance in the DC universe, and he remains the Spectre and essentially unused as a character in any major way until the Green Lantern Rebirth storyline, which began in December of 2004, written by DC's man of a thousand ideas, Jeff Johns. In the first issue of Rebirth, we see the last Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, burst from the sun in a green rocket ship and crash land onto Earth with a payload of one coffin. He can't take his power ring off, and he's mumbling about being afraid. Meanwhile, Carol Ferris, Jordan's on-again, off-again love interest, is considering buying Ferris Aircraft, her father's old company in Coast City, when while walking through the abandoned site, she finds Hal Jordan's old fighter plane restored and collecting dust. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Green Lantern Jon Stewart and former Green Lantern Guy Gardner are in New York to meet Hal Jordan at a Yankee game. The two are arguing, Guy telling John that he's lost his willingness to step up against ideas he disagrees with. John telling Guy he doesn't have to admit missing being a Green Lantern because John knows he does. They take their seats at the game and Hal arrives, joining them. They small talk for a bit before people, compelled by the specter contained in how Jordan, begin approaching him, admitting their sins. It starts with one man but eventually continues on until the entire section surrounding Jordan is telling him their sins, including tax cheat Guy Gardner. Hal says he can't stay, the spirit of vengeance isn't letting him rest anymore, and he leaves. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in Star City, Green Arrow and his ward, Speedy, are attacked by Green Lantern rogue, Black Hand, who's come for a Green Lantern ring given to Green Arrow by Hal Jordan, years ago. Black Hand locates the ring using his energy siphon, a weapon he created to battle Green Lantern that absorbs the ring's energy, but when he lifts the ring, Green Arrow pins his hand to a wall with a namesake. How Jordan shows up, transformed into the Spectre and as the sadistic spirit of vengeance, turns Black Hand's right hand into ash before saying something about him isn't right and vanishing in a flash of green light. We cut back to Jon Stewart and Guy Gardner, now in Guy's cell phone bar, Warriors, where Guy has statues of all the Earth Green Lanterns mounted. His is, of course, the biggest. They're still discussing how when Guy Gardner's warrior powers kick in uncontrolled and he fires an arm cannon at Jon Stewart who's barely able to get his shield up in time. Guy explodes immediately after destroying his bar. Meanwhile, a couple of pilots flying over the Coast City crater in a Cessna are shocked to find the city completely restored. Every street, every light post. Meanwhile, Hector Hammond, legendary Green Lantern villain, is in his cell in Bell Rev and can feel Kyle Rayner's fear and relishes in it. Jon Stewart takes Guy Gardner to the Watchtower, where he's inspected by the premier super doctor, Dr. Midnight, who can't find any reason for why Guy Gardner's body is on the fritz. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman, Mr. Terrific, Power Girl, Wildcat, Alan Scott, and his daughter Jade investigate the Warriors bar and find everything destroyed except Hal Jordan's statue. This, of course, makes Batman, who's watching from the JLA Watchtower, batspicious. And the suspicion grows when Wally West, my personal favorite Flash, investigates Coast City with Aquaman and finds only one building restored, Hal Jordan's old apartment building. When the League expressed doubt that Hal Jordan is making another evil power play, Batman snaps, revealing his feelings for Hal Jordan. He thinks Hal Jordan is arrogant and never plans and always runs off half-cocked. He does not like the man. At all. John Stewart cuts Batman off, telling Batman the only reason he doesn't like Hal is because Hal was the only person who showed not an ounce of fear in him. This shuts Bats up, but Green Arrow enters the watchtower and tells the league what Jordan did to Blackhand and they get ready for action. While at Ferris Airbase, Carol Ferris is in the rain with her rundown jets when they are suddenly repaired to perfect condition. The issue ends with Hal in his bomber jacket standing outside of one of the jets, smiling at her. On Oa, to open issue 2, a green force of energy rockets from the central power battery, destroying the statue of Hal Jordan in front of the battery with a simple directive. Find Kyle Rayner. And Kyle Rayner? He's in Highway Mill, New Mexico, being watched by the two dudes who witness his ship crash. Kyle says it'd be so easy to fix his injuries if he used the ring, but he refuses. He passes out from the pain as his ring issues a warning. Parallax is coming. Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris reminisce about the first day they met as children. Howe's father told him to hold his jacket as he test flew a jet. How bragged that his father was flying the plane. Cow bragged that her father owned it. Moments before the jet explodes right before their eyes. How says when your worst fear happens before your eyes, there's nothing left to be afraid of. He goes on to say that this is the moment he learned to question authority because nobody in power is always right. He says something's changed in him that no matter what he's done in his life, he never questioned his willpower, but he can feel a difference within him, a difference that isn't him, and he needs to find a way back to who he was. We shift back to the Watts Tower and Jon Stewart and Green Arrow are talking. Green Arrow asks if the power Ring still have a weakness to Yellow, and John says not since Hal destroyed the central power battery. He asks if Arrow wants him to charge the ring, but Arrow says no, that he tried to use it once and couldn't get it to Spark. The ring runs on intense willpower, and Ollie Queen, cynic that he is, doesn't operate off of intense will. He calls the Guardians naive despite being the oldest creatures in the universe, and John says, Lording over it all from Mount High can skew your perceptions. That it's one of the reasons he hates the Watchtower being in space. It creates a detachment. I look at my country's government, a majority of the people in power affluent in both culture and capital, and understand this sentiment. I wonder often if they truly care about the people who don't sit on Mount High. My answer? Far too often, it's not at all. But I digress. Back to Zatanna uses her magic to locate Hal Jordan, and the League's heavy hitters plan to go pay him a visit. Arrow wants to go, but Batman tells him to stay back because if things go wrong, they need Arrow to lead the next wave of heroes. We shift back to Carol and Hal, and she's telling Hal she's married now, so whatever they had can't be. They hug, and she tells him he feels cold moments before the Justice League arrives on scene. Wonder Woman, her lasso of truth in her hand, tells Hal they have questions, and Superman lets him know about Guy Gardner in Coast City. Hal wants to know if Guy's okay, and Flash asks what Jordan did to Coast City. He replies he only fixed the airfield, and Batman gets clever, saying, back to fixing things, Jordan? And Jon Stewart snaps! He takes to this guy, saying Guy Gardner was right about the type of person he's become, before attacking the lead, Superman flies up to meet John with his chest puffed out, but John's an architect, and the black man with the green ring replies that even the strongest structures had weak points before striking Supes in the eyes with two concentrated beams of green will. Hal transforms into the Spectre to help, but the Spectre forbids him, telling him he's needed elsewhere, and he vanishes as Flash runs for his life while John Stewart fires green beams of energy from above, the whole time his ring repeating the phrase, Parallax is coming, over and over. Meanwhile, back at the Watts Tower, Guy's body starts repairing itself. At the same time, the Green Lantern ring in Arrow's hand gets white-hot. The ring duplicates itself, and the copy flies from Arrow's hand and onto the middle finger of Guy Gardner's right hand. There's a blinding flash of light, and in it, we see Guy's lips break into her smile before the ring says Parallax is coming. Guy says, oh yeah, and blasts the leaguer surrounding him in a giant green light. When the dust settles, only Guy Gardner is left in his vintage Green Lantern costume. Green Lantern Guy Gardner is back. Meanwhile, Green Lanterns are beginning to pop up all over. Kilowog, remember him, murdered by Hal Jordan? He returned, suited and booted in his Green Lantern uniform, to Earth in New Mexico and attacked Kyle Rayner immediately. Kyle, weakened, dodges his attacks, and the coffin he brought with him from the sun is blown open. Kilowog advances on it, but is interrupted by the last guardian of Oa, Ganthic, who tells him the soul of Hal Jordan may be with the Spectre, but the body of Hal Jordan is under his protection and we see the body of Hal Jordan in his parallax costume, his hands across his chest. Kilowog attacks Ganthic, and we get a gorgeous battle to open three between the two. Kyle has to use his ring to protect himself, and when he does, he sees Guy as a Green Lantern once more, and Jon Stewart has by himself laid waste to the Justice League in Coast City. Kyle, a clenched fist, says, damn it, Jordan, you better be worth it. Meanwhile, the Spectre has transported Hal Jordan outside of Coast City, and Hal makes his way to his old apartment building. He enters the building and finds a power battery sitting on the floor. His parallax form stares back at him from the power battery, telling Jordan that he revived Coast City. Back in New Mexico, Ganford tells Kyle that because he knows fear, he doesn't need to worry about being corrupted by whatever's happening with the power rings before teleporting Kyle and Hal Jordan's body away to the Justice League Watchtower. Back in Coast City, we find Hal Jordan being attacked by his inner demons as his Parallax form tries to possess him once more, but two's a party and it gets crowded in a second when the Spectre begins fighting for control and tells Jordan that he has to see the truth about Parallax. Back in the Watchtower, Kyle tells Arrow that the willpower fueling Green Lantern rings is collected from every being in the universe. Every time a being exerts their will, the power battery collects it and uses it to fuel the Green Lantern core. Kyle says there's a whole emotional spectrum and the color green representing willpower is the most pure and sits in the middle of it. Arrow asks what that has to do with Hal and Kyle says he found something while out in space on the edge of the universe. On the 10th planet from the sun Podulus. the beings there knew parallax as well, but not Hal Jordan. The parallax they knew was a yellow entity composed of living fear. The beings told Kyle that Parallax threatened to consume the universe until the Guardians of Oa intervened and working together, trapped Parallax in the central power battery that fueled the Green Lantern rings. The weakness to the color yellow that all Green Lanterns shared was because Parallax was trapped in the battery. Parallax was purposely forgotten through the eons, and the yellow impurity just became a thing Green Lanterns had to work around. He goes on to say, Parallax lay dormant for years, but woke up weak, hungry, and looking for a strong Green Lantern to possess it chose Hal Jordan, slowly corrupting him. Hal Jordan's Reed Richard hairstyle, remember way back in Me and My Friend Pete Number One when I said my grandfather must have had an extremely frightening experience because his hair was shock white since he was 19? Hal went white around the temples when the fear entity began to really take root in him. With the destruction of Co-City at the hands of the cyborg and Mongol, I told you it started there, Parallax was able to gain command over Hal Jordan and when Jordan rampaged through the universe and destroyed the central power battery, he freed Parallax unknowingly and it bonded with his soul. Kyle says when Hal sacrificed himself to reignite the sun, it was proof of his willpower, fighting against the fear in one last glorious moment of will. He says evil finally escaped the Green Lantern's sight by hiding inside of Hal Jordan. Back in Coast City, Hal has just heard the same story from the Spectre. The Spectre tells Jordan he chose him as a host to kill Parallax from the inside, but Parallax interrupts saying he was too strong and rips through Hal's soul taking control of him once more. Back at the Watchtower. Kyle says he confronted Ganthet, and Ganthet told him Parallax must have wiped his memory before sending him to the sun to retrieve Hal's body. But Arrow's not buying it. He's sure the Guardians knew. As Hal's best friend, he gained the healthy mistrust of the emotionless guardians. Either way, he, Arrow, wants to know how he can help. He wonders why, out of all the lanterns, Parallax chose Jordan and who woke the entity up before he struck in the shoulder by a yellow arrow. We see Thal Sinestro return, the Korrigar killer, his yellow accordion ring back on his hand as he asks, Who could? Who would? Who else? As he constructs a skeleton's hand, holding a bow and arrow from the yellow light. Things pick up fast now. Kyle tries to fight Sinestro, but the man from Korrigar is a ring-wielding savant and decimates both his opponents. He said he had no idea that his yellow ring was channeling fear until he was trapped in the power battery and met Parallax. He joined forces with the fear entity, and now his mission is simple, to make sure Jordan stays dead. He approaches the coffin while in Coast City Parallax seems to have emerged victorious until he's approached by Ganthet, who drops Kilowog's body to the ground before telling Parallax that he's freed Kilowog from his control and that Ganthet's own memory has been restored. Parallax calls Ganthet a liar saying you didn't forget anything that without evil in the universe, there is no need for the Guardians. Parallax summons Guy Gardner and Jon Stewart to attack Ganthet, but Ganthet easily frees them from the fear entity's influence. Walker regains consciousness, and now we're in the numbers game, with all lanterns realizing what really happened to Jordan. Ganthet tells Parallax he's made a lot of enemies, and Parallax is fearless. He says he can handle three lanterns, but doesn't realize Ganthet means the world's heroes as they swarm onto the scene, and it's a who's who. The Justice League, Justice Society, and Teen Titans show up with the big three, Batman, Supes, and Wonder Woman leading the charge. Back at the Watchtower, Kyle is still being trounced by the Gar Killer, while Arrow tries to charge the ring given to him by Hal Jordan with Kyle Rayner's power battery. Kyle, pinned down by Yellow Constructs, is about to be killed by Sinestro when Green Arrow steps into the doorway. Sinestro tells him don't waste his time trying to help because Arrow's will is cynical, so he can't will the power ring. He goes on to say that Hal Jordan made him a villain on his homeworld, so Sinestro is just returning the favor. Sidebar, Sinestro was imprisoned in the Central Power Battery because as a Green Lantern, he was the greatest of all time when he was doing it. Unfortunately, no one knew in his sector where his home planet of Corrigar was, he installed himself as a dictator and ruled like a tyrant. How Jordan found out and how Jordan being a rookie had to take down the greatest Green Lantern of all time. Did Hal Jordan take him down? Well, the man wasn't the power battery, wasn't he? Hal Jordan slings ring, baby. Back to. Sinestro goes on to say that there's no one left who believes in Hal Jordan. And Green Arrow, summoning all his will, manages to get the ring to fire. But it's one singular shot. One arrow. It strikes through Sinestro's chest, dead center, through the rib cage. And Sinestro is unfazed. Fun fact. Corrigarians, their hearts are on the right side. Arrow missed completely. Kyle saves Arrow from Sinestro's counterattack, and Arrow says using the ring has made his legs weak, his arms weak, his body weak as a whole, and made him feel like he hasn't slept in days. He wonders aloud if it feels like this all the time. Kyle says every single time. Arrow, with a look of respect in his eyes, never there for Kyle before, says, damn. Kid working. Back in Co City, Parallax is dominating the fight against the heroes, and he is about to kill Alan Scott, who he couldn't possess despite his best efforts, when Hal Jordan's soul, still the most willful in the galaxy, rips out from the chest of the fear entity, telling Spectre to get off his ass and fight. Spectre escapes Parallax's influence and immediately leaves the fight, having freed Jordan. Parallax, detached from Jordan and the Spectre, decides he needs more power and possesses Ganthit, the former last guardian of Oa. Meanwhile, Jordan's soul, free, is about to head into the Great Beyond when Ganthet, still fighting against Parallax possession, tells Hal to follow his light. Don't follow the light, follow my light. On Hal's way to heaven, he sees Abensora, the alien who first gave him his ring, telling him to overcome great fear. Hal sees his father next, telling him to wear it right. Hal stops following the white light to heaven and follows Ganthet's green light instead. Back in the watchtower, Sinestro tells Arrow and Reyna to beg for their lives and he'll make it quick before the ring on Arrow's finger slides off his hand and into the coffin where Jordan's body is laying. The grey around Jordan's temples vanishes and he rises from the coffin. The ring on his finger ablaze as he says, Sinestro, get the hell away from them! How Jordan lives, that's issue 4, we're almost there. He and Sinestro waste no time getting right into the fisticuffs to start issue 5 on the surface of the moon and while they battle we get a flashback to he and Sinestro's first meeting. A meeting that sees Sinestro, a Green Lantern at the time, the best ever at the time, destroying Jordan's F-16 while he's flying it. In this meeting, Sinestro, the greatest Green Lantern in history, tells Jordan never to question his superior. And Jordan, defiance personified, says, that's not going to work for me. The two shoot across the galaxy and fight in the rings of Saturn. Sinestro saying he's going to destroy Earth, then go finish off Kyle, calling him a street rat before he's struck in the back by 11 construct arrows in the shape of the Green Lantern symbol. The torchbearer, Kyle Rayner, flows behind him and tells him Green Arrow says hi. Jordan and Sinestro both throw punches and their rings connect. Jordan's will destroy Sinestro's fear and his ring shatters. The Corrigar killer vanishes in a flash of light with a smile on his face saying, Jordan, welcome back, before disappearing into an extra-dimensional vortex. Kyle and Hal shake hands, properly introduced for the first time, and Kyle shows doubt. He says he can't overcome great fear, and Hal says, come on, kid. You fought from one part of the galaxy to the other and risked your life for a man everybody else discarded like so much trash. And you fought the guard killer one-on-one. He goes on to ask what Kyle thinks he's been doing. Hiding under his drawing board before flying off towards Earth. Kyle smiles, Kyle follows. Back in Coast City, ganthet has been completely possessed and says he's feeding on everyone's fear except one, who he calls a disciple, as he stares at Batman. Batman doesn't fear anything, even fear itself, and he and Jordan have that in common. Batman saw his worst fear come to life in Crime Alley when he was a child, there is nothing left for him to be afraid of. Jordan lands on scene and rallies the lanterns telling them to light him up, that if they remember fear, they can take Parallax. But before they can take to the skies, Batman hurls a Batarang around Jordan's wrist and pulling his arm down says as long as he's standing, Jordan's doing nothing while the rest of the league looks on. Jordan destroys the Batarang to open the rebirth finale, and the Green Lanterns prepare to take the fight to Parallax again when Batman puts a hand on Jordan's shoulder. And Jordan cracks him across the jaw to the joy of Guy Gardner, who's been on the receiving end of a Batman punch one too many times for his liking. The Lanterns fly off to do battle with Parallax, Guy gushing the whole time. And the league tries to follow, but are stopped by Alan, Scott, and Jade, spiritual brothers to the core. They tell the league to let Jordan handle it. And Hal has a simple plan. He and the Four Lanterns with him. They're going to retract Parallax in the central power battery as Parallax possessing Ganthet, opens its mouth wide to devour them. And the Green Lanterns open up on a villain, each wielding their signature style. Jon Stewart, master architect, constructs a winch to lock down Parallax's right arm. Guy, his ring dripping with willpower, creates a massive buzzsaw that digs into Parallax's chest armor. Kilowog's ring, the only one in the core that makes a sound when used, fires directly into Guy's opening. And Kyle Rayner creates a giant hand holding a pencil and draws clawed brackets that force Parallax's mouth open. And the big gun steps forward. How doesn't get fancy when he doesn't need to. He says he's about precision. Concentrated power, focused ambition, tangible glory. And fires a beam of light straight through Kyle's opening and down Parallax's throat. The other lanterns follow his attack and recite in the green lantern oath. Poor Will power down Parallax's throat. Parallax counterattacks, dropping all the lanterns in various ways except one. The big dog. How? Respect my power, Jordan. He alone fights against Parallax, who tells him continually to give up. How squeezes his eyes closed, and when he opens them, his pupils are gone. Replaced with the green lantern symbol, as he says he doesn't know how. Tell him to give up, and he doesn't know how. How? The other lanterns, inspired, rally through their ailments and they force Parallax out of Ganthus' body and back into the central power battery. We see a whole new generation of Guardians, both men and women now, staring up at the central power battery as Parallax is trapped once more. The fight ends and Guy Gardner screams that that's how lanterns do it. When Stewart asks him what was all that talk about not missing being Team Green, Guy keeps it a buck. He sucks his teeth. It says I lied. In the epilogue, Hal visits Green Arrow in Star City, who returns his power battery to him. He tells how he still can't remember that damn oath, and the series ends with Hal raising his power battery and placing his ring up close to it, saying he'll never forget it. In the aftermath of rebirth, the Green Lancer Corps is reestablished, and over the next few years, a series of wars break out between other cores that pop up. Six in total. Just as green is the color of willpower and yellow the color of fear, the other colors of the standard Roy G. Biv rainbow, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, also all grow to have their own core as well. Green being the color in the middle of the emotional spectrum, it has little sway over the lanterns wielding it. But the further in both directions one goes from the center, the more influence the color has on the wielder. The first core the Green Lanterns do battle with is Sinestro's, Known as, of course, the Sinestro Corps, with the aftermath of the war being that Green Lanterns now have permission to use deadly force, an edict once denied them. The other Corps and leaders are the Red Lantern Corps, led by Atrocitus, who channel rage as a weapon, the Orange Lantern Corps, led by its sole member Larfleas, which channels the power of avarice or greed. I learned the word avarice from these tales. Fun fact Yellow, Fear, Sinestro's Corps, as mentioned, Green, the Green Lantern Corps. Blue, a core led by Ganthet who breaks away from the Guardians of Oa because they still refuse to accept that emotions are more powerful than their feigned stoicism. The Blue Lanterns wield the power of hope, and their rings don't necessarily fight, but boost the power of other rings, usually Green Lanterns who they're closely aligned with. Every ring has a charge of 100%. If a Green Lantern is next to a Blue Lantern, a Green Lantern's ring charges to up to 500%. Blue rings supercharge Green rings. The Indigo Core, who use staffs instead of rings and are led by Indigo 1, They wield the purple light of compassion and finally the star sapphires, former Green Lantern villains who wield the power of love and are led by Carol Ferris, Hal Jordan's longtime on-again, off-again main love interest. Most core to the right of willpower on the emotional spectrum war with the core to the left of willpower for the next couple of years until Batman dies at the eyes of Darkseid's Omega Beams. Each core also has an entity that defines and fuels their power rings. Parallax is obviously for fear, but there is also iron for the Green Lanterns, the Butcher for the Red Lanterns, and so on and so forth. All this is happening in Black Hand, you may remember Spectre, How Jordan Turned His Hand Into Dust, is abducted by German-speaking alien gremlins, experimented on and released. Around this time, his backstory is updated as well, and now he is a character obsessed with death. Also, another fun fact, Black Hand, William Hand, was given the name William Hand, as an homage to the Bronx's very own and Batman creator, Batman universe creator, Bill Finger, who got no credit during his life for most of his work. There's a documentary on Hulu about him. You should check it out. Shout out to Bill Finger, always shout out to the Bronx. You know where I live, you know what I love. Back to, so Black Hand is being transported to prison when he kills the guards and begins having visions of a black power battery on a dead planet. A voice in his head begins telling him it wants him to retake every soul that has escaped death in the DC universe. And if you are death in comic books, especially in DC, you know that's a lot of escapes. In preparation for this, Black Hand goes back to his family home and murders his entire family, his two brothers, his mother, and his father, before committing suicide. But Black Hand wouldn't rest in peace. He is resurrected shortly after by a rogue guardian known as Scar, who is obsessed with death. This guardian becomes twisted after they face off against the anti-monitor, and the anti-monitor grabbed Scar by the head and burned her face. Scar tells Hand that just like Parallax is the living embodiment of fear and Ion the living embodiment of willpower, Hand is going to be the living embodiment of death and The Blackest Night begins. Issue Zero sees how Jordan and Barry Allen recently revived Flash at the unmarked grave of Bruce Wayne reminiscing about their lives and death. The Flash says that there's an escape from death to be had, you know Bruce Wayne is planning it. When they leave, Black Hand approaches Bruce Wayne's gravesite and digs up the hero's skull. Black Hand recites the Black Lantern core oath and the eye sockets in Bruce Wayne's skull glow green as Scar, now the Black Lantern's guardian, looks on. In issue one from Space Sector 666, where the Black Lantern power battery lives, thousands of Black Rings begin flying from it in search of hosts as all across the DC universe, death is the topic of discussion with all major heroes lamenting their losses from the Teen Titans, to the Justice League, to the Rogues and Flash's hometown of Central City, as Alfred Pennyworth, Bruce Wayne's butler, realizes Wayne's grave has been desecrated. Meanwhile, on Oa, the Guardians of the Universe are watching the War of Light raging between the different corps and saying they failed. They say they have to issue a cold black before Scar attacks them and abducts them, preventing the call. All this happening and Black Power Rings arrive at the crypt of the Green Lantern in Space Sector 666 on Mars where the Martian Manhunter is buried and also, of course, Earth. And thousands, thousands of the dead rise. Black Lantern's powers very briefly, they play on emotions, and when a person gets riled up with an intense emotion from the spectrum, the Black Lanterns are then able to steal their hearts and add them to the undead army. Hawkman, the League's resident hothead, is enraged and Hawkgirl, admitting she's in love with him, both fall to Ralph and Sue Dibney, who prey on their emotions, and they become the first to be killed and rise as Black Lanterns. Issue 2 opens with Barbara and Jim Gordon on the roof of the GCPD, the bat symbol on. Jim is saying he's got a bad feeling of what's to come, and he's right as the Green Lantern crashes into the bat signal. Meanwhile, a now-dead Hawkman tells Ray Palmer, his best friend in the Atom, if you recall from the Trial by Crisis bonus episode here on Me and My Friend Pete, to come over to his place, hoping to corrupt him. Meanwhile, on the coast of Amnesty Bay, land home and burial site to the king of Atlantis, Aquaman, his ward Garth, aka Tempest, and wife Mira are planning to move his body to Atlantis when they find his grave disturbed and realize the king is undead and itching for a fight. He sees the fear in the royal guard brought to aid in the transfer of his body and using that fear, rips one of their hearts out. Meanwhile, Boston Brand, DC's resident body snatcher and dead man Phantom, is in his grave fighting to stay dead. But the oath of the Black Lanterns is heard above his grave, and he rises as a Black Lantern. Black Ring's head for Don and Hank Hall next, the original Hawk and Dove, granted powers by the Lords of Chaos and Order, respectively. Hank rises from the grave no problem. He's a hothead. But try as the Black Ring might to raise Don, it keeps being told he can't rise because he is at peace. Meanwhile, Mira and Tempest are fighting for their lives as their dead loved ones join Aquaman and trying to kill them. Meanwhile, meanwhile, DC's magical, heavy-hitting super team, the Shadow Pack, is attacked, and Crispus Allen, the new host to the Spectre since Hal regained his life, is corrupted by Black Hand and transformed into the undead Spirit of Vengeance. All this is happening, and Barry Allen, fastest man alive, is being chased by the undead Martian Manhunter, while Green Lantern Hal Jordan talks with Barbara and Commissioner Garden. Barbara, former Batgirl, current Oracle at this time, has become the backbone of superhero coordination during disasters, so now she's in the loop and Green Lantern knows she'll get everybody. Love the Oracle character. They tried to put her in the fridge. She became the most important person in the superhero community. That's fortitude. Commissioner Gordon asks if there's anything he can do, and Hal Jordan asks to borrow his car. Back at Amnesty Bay, Tempest, fighting one of his dead lovers, tells her he still has hope she can break free of whatever grip is holding her. Hope is blue in the emotional spectrum. Tempest has his heart ripped out and rises as a Black Lantern. Mira, now extremely outmatched, escapes from her undead family into the foggy night. Flash is still fighting Martian Manhunter, who he lures into a chemical plant and surrounds with flammable chemicals before Hal Jordan shows up, a police cruiser in a green construct hand, and hurls the car at the Martian Manhunter, causing an explosion, knowing fire is the Manhunter's weakness. They stop the Martian for the moment, but Jordan has no idea that all across the universe, Green Lanterns are locked in combat with the undead. Chief among the Zombie Horde, the Green Lanterns whose bodies were lying in state in Sector 666. Flash says he wants to take Martian Manhunter's body back to Mars, but the Martian isn't dead, and now he's joined by Hawkman, Hawkgirl, Ralph, Sue, and a recently resurrected Firestorm. The issue ends with a diary entry of William Hand, aka Blackhand, And it's amazing and chilling and just, Jeff Johns was working right then. Issue 3 opens to the new Firestorm duo, a black teenager named Jason and an Asian teenager named Jen, who are dating and running around as the nuclear man. I don't know if you know, but Firestorm is a hero composed of two people, and right now it's these two. I don't even want to think about the weird sexual tension. In Gotham, the Flash and Green Lantern are still fighting for their lives. Flash tries to pull the black ring from Firestorm's finger, but realizes he can't. Lantern's about to be clobbered by Hawkman when none other than Ray Palmer, the Atom, comes bursting from Hawkman's ring, cracking his undead best friend across the jaw. The Living Firestorm heads to the Justice League's base following Aquaman's symbol. They're attacked by Mera before she realizes they're living. I love Mera. She's figured out the trick to surviving against the Black Lanterns when Jason tells Jen to calm down out loud. Mira tells Jason to tell whoever is in his head to relax because the Black Lanterns feed off emotion. Back in Gotham, Flash says they have to escape. But before they can lantern is subdued and ray palmer feeling compassion still held over from identity crisis is about to have his heart ripped out by gene loring when the indigo tribe arrives indigo is the color of compassion on the spectrum Led by Indigo 1, they tear into the Black Lantern, saving Ray Palmer and speaking their unique language that even Hal Jordan's ring can't translate. Their light combined with Green Lanterns severs the connection of the black rings on Ralph and Sue Dibney's fingers and the two disintegrate into dust before the Indigos teleport Green Lantern and the gang to the Justice League headquarters in Washington DC where they link up with Mirror and Firestorm. At the Watchtower, Indigo 1 reveals she can speak English and explains what's happening across the universe. She says, in the beginning, there was darkness, But the light fought back, and over time, the darkness regained its footing and split the white light into the seven emotional colors of the spectrum. Ray Palmer realizes the dead are being worn by the Black Rings, not vice versa. Indigo 1 tells him that the combined light of a green ring with any other makes the Black Rings capable of being destroyed and almost convinces HAL to fly off into space before the Flash tells him he can't when the Martian Manhunter's undead troop attacks again. Undead Firestorm splits Jason and Jen apart and trapping Jason inside of himself turns Jen into table salt and removes her heart. Black Ring storm JLA headquarters and undead villains start rising left and right. Maxwell Lord, Dr. Light, Copperhead, Madame Rouge, and countless others. Issue four opens to Black Hand and Co City monologuing about the end of times. With every death, his power ring grows in power and now it's at nearly 94%. In Washington DC, the atom gets sciency. Shrinking down, he dials a number on a nearby cell phone and grabbing the flashing mirror, jumps with them through the phone line and they shoot out on the other side of the 911 emergency call center. In Gotham, undead former Batman Azriel has risen from the dead and is terrorizing the city. People run past, drenched in the yellow light of fear as Jonathan Crane approaches Azrael, saying he wants to feel fear. Being the Scarecrow so long, he's forgotten what it's like to have emotion and Azriel sensing nothing from him, walks past without harming the villain at all. In Metropolis, Lex Luthor is speaking with the Calculator, the villain version of the Oracle, and they're realizing that even rogues are rising and killing other rogues now. Luthor asks if Calculator knows how many people he's killed over the years. He says that the dead are rising. He's got his own problems before ending the call with Calculator and sealing his building, hiding away in a 19th sub-level of LexCorp. Meanwhile, Flash realizes that only the dead with emotional attachments to the heroes and the villains are coming back to life. He gives a riveting speech to Mira and the Atom about trusting their greatness as heroes before taking off to rally the troops. The Atom calls up Dr. Terrific, and he and Mira make the jump through the phone line and pop out of one of Mr. Terrific's T-spheres into a war zone in Manhattan, where the Justice Society of America are fighting the undead. The Atom says to point him to Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern. Meanwhile, Barry's doing what he does faster than anyone else alive. He's running, racing from one battlefield to the next. He lets all the heroes know they have to maintain control over their emotions and make sure he says it twice to Green Arrow, the hothead. He tells the heroes how to stop Black Lanterns and says anyone with flight-based powers needs to step up right now and shine as brightly as they can. Barry gets into contact with the other Flashes, Wally and Kid Bard, and they all start spreading the message. Kid Flash asks where the Titans should go and Barry says wherever there's trouble. Ray Palmer teams up with the son of the original Adam, Damage, and convinces him they can win the day. Damage feels hope, and Gene Loring rips his heart out, pushing the Black Lantern power level to 100%. Barry feels the shift and races towards Coast City, telling everyone to meet him there because he feels something big happening in Coast City. In Space Sector 666, Scar with the imprisoned guardians in front of the central Black Power Battery says it's time and transports the Black Lantern battery to Earth with a thought. Black Hand says, Necron, rise. And we see Necron, a black scythe in his hand, ruler of the black light. He says, Barry, nay, everyone owes him their lives. Five opens with Ganthed and Sade, lovers and guardians of the blue light of hope, with the five strongest members of their respective corps. Atrocitus, Larflees, Sinestro, Hal Jordan, Saint Walker, Indigo One, and Carol Ferris, arriving in sector 666. Realizing that the battery is now on Earth, Hal tells everyone to shut up and light up, and we see every corps recite their individual oaths. Except for Larflees. Larflees is like Gondor with a king. Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. And Larflees has no oath because Larflees needs no oath. In fact, I think his oath is mine, if I'm not mistaken. One word, mine. He refuses to charge up until Hal takes it upon himself to shove Larflees' face into his own lantern. Everyone else charges up to 100%. Larflees, one man army that he is, charges up to 100,000%. I think they're ready to go. Barry Allen, face to face with Necron, goes right at him before he's joined by the fastest Flash of all time and greatest, Wally West. Wally says things have changed since he was a kid to Barry's Flash, that now he's the Nightwing to Barry's Batman. And Barry says, no, you're the Flash to my Flash. Barry is so egoless, it's beautiful reading him when he's written with that kind of forever humility. Wally says they don't have a core, but they've got friends, and we see the League and the Titans fly on scene. Fire, Ice, Animal Man, Beast Boy, Wonder Girl, Dove, Cyborg, Star Sapphire, Superboy, Donna Troy, Kid Flash, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Necron is in for some chop. Back in Manhattan, the Atom and Mirror are grabbed by Jean Loring, and she takes them into the newly risen damages Black Power Ring. Back in Coast City, the war's on, and the heroes discover Dove seems to be channeling the white light, because when Black Lanterns try to corrupt her, she burns them and they don't come back. Barry says they need to get her front and center, but Donna Troy, the original Wonder Girl and just back from the dead, is bit on the neck and begins turning into an undead. The Flashes speed toward the trapped Guardians of the universe, trying to get them free, but Scar attacks and is just about to eat Wally Flash's face off when the cavalry arrives. The Seven Lantern leaders bombard Scar with their lights, Sinestro in particular enjoying the moment because he hates the Guardians. They pour it on and destroy her. They go after the power battery next, knowing their combined colors can destroy it when Necron plays his trump card. A black ring flies from the battery and into the forehead of the skull of Bruce Wayne, being held by Black Hand, and undead Bruce Wayne bursts onto the scene. Bruce Wayne is connected to every hero on the scene, and emotional tethers are registered immediately. So much for keeping feelings intact, because with his return, every superhero that died and was resurrected has a Black Ring slide onto their fingers. That's Wonder Woman. That's Superman. That's Superboy. That's Kid Flash. That's Green Arrow. Necron says, die, and they do. Once the heroes rise undead, Necron destroys Bruce Wayne. Issue ends with Black Rings trying to re-kill the two greatest rebirths in DC, Hal Jordan and Barry Allen. Issue six opens to two Black Rings fighting to grab Barry Flash and Green Lantern. Flash tells Barry to throw him a rope and Barry grabbing it tells him to hold on for dear life. Lantern says the rings are fast. Barry says yeah. Barry says I'm faster. And Sonic booms across the Arizona desert, jumping two seconds into the future and severing the connection to the Black Rings. Green Lantern wonders aloud if stopping Necron will kill the revived heroes himself and Barry included. And Barry says he hopes not. I don't want to die again, I just came back and a great story. Inside of Damage's ring, Gene Loring is still trying to kill the Atom and Mira when she's possessed by none other than the dead man, Boston Brand, who has been hiding out in the rings so he isn't possessed. He tells him to get out and warn everyone. Every Black Lantern in the universe is coming to Earth, and if you recall, core members of every color have been dropping like flies by the thousands. It's finna be a full-on invasion! Mira and the Atom trap Gene and damage his battery with Mira wondering aloud. How many Black Lanterns that could possibly be? And we get the answer right away, as the black man with the green ring, John Stewart is racing towards Earth with literally billions of Black Lanterns and the planet Mogo, former Green Lantern, before John blew him the shit on his tail. Oh yeah, so John destroyed two planets at this point in his tenure as Green Lantern, and I'm sure more than a few of those Lanterns are chasing him specifically. Back on Earth, the Adam and Mira leap from a ring and realizes none other than the princess of the Amazons herself, Wonder Woman. She asks Mira if the woman believes she can take her one-on-one, but Mira's got it swinging past her knees, and she says, glowing red from rage, that she always wanted to find out. In Coast City, the heroes realize they need much more power to destroy the battery. Indigo 1 says she can teleport more core into the mix, but she needs time. Gantt splits Hal's ring and inducts himself into the Green Lantern core, knowing his light of blue hope won't be enough. He says it's time for him to get involved as a fighter. Then he gets magic he says, none of the other Corps know, but there's a safeguard in every ring that gives the wielder the power to deputize a being for 24 hours as an honorary member of any Corps. And before the ring bearers can protest, he splits every ring and sends the doubles off to search for deputies. Barry Allen receives the Blue Ring of Hope. Luthor, suited and booted beneath LexCorp, about to be overrun with the undead, he's responsible for killing, and it's hundreds to be sure, receives an Orange Ring of Avarice. And Gotham, Scarecrow, terrorizing people with his fear toxin, receives a yellow ring of fear. The Atom fittingly receives a ring of compassion. Mirror receives a red ring of rage. And Diana, Princess of the Amazons, despite being undead, still receives a pink ring of love because nobody on the planet loves him more than her. The pink ring shatters her black one, and she's returned to the side of the angels. The six deputies race into the battle with Barry Flash leading the charge, quoting the Blue Light of Hope's motto All will be well. Issue 7 opens to the battle raging. We get a great look at Black Hand trying to steal Atrocitus' heart, but when you're a Red Lantern, your heart gets devoured by your rage and you live through your ring, not your chest, so no dice. Meanwhile, Scarecrow is living his best life. He can feel fear again and he's bringing it to Black Lanterns until Luthor, unable to control the greed fueling him, attacks Scarecrow and steals his ring before moving on to Mira and trying to steal hers. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Jon Stewart, the black man with the green ring, is in the fight of his life. He says there are more Black Lanterns above Earth than people on it right now. There are 8 billion people on this planet. He's literally fighting an 8 billion on one battle. That's the Black man with the Green Ring. Before Indigo 1's teleportation finally works and we see every Lantern of every color, not on Earth, appear in the skies above it. Led by none other than Honor Guard Green Lantern himself, Guy Gardner. A message comes through to all Lantern Rings that it's happening. The most epic team-up in the history of the universe. The seven core, until Necron is done, are one. So says every Lantern core leader. Guy says that's never gonna happen. But Indigo 2 tells him, if y'all fight them alone, each Green Lantern will be in a one-on 3,400,023 battle. When Guy asks about the team-up numbers, Indigo 2 replies, then you only have to face 2,712,919. I mean, it is better odds in the end, right? Back on Earth? Necron, holding a Guardian by the hair, asks if he has any last words. The Guardian says long live the core!" before Necron cuts his throat. Black Blackhand takes the Guardian's heart and places it at the center of a Black Lantern symbol made with the Guardian's spilled yellow blood. And now we see what Necron's plan was. Remember when I said every core has an entity that fuels their power? Necron has found the white entity and is going to kill it, ending all life in the universe in one fell swoop. And he strikes at it with his dark scythe. Cantha says the Guardians may be the oldest entities in the universe, but life didn't start on their planet. It started on Earth with the White Entity. And Sinestro snaps. Abin Soar, the Green Lantern who gave Hal his ring upon his death, was Sinestro's best friend, and the Guardians let him die with everyone believing him crazy, Sinestro included. Sinestro creates a yellow state construct and jams it through Ganthet's shoulder, saying, "You kept Earth a secret to justify your authority, and now I'm going to justify mine." Sinestro really is a bad man. How Jordan realizes the entity isn't fighting back because it needs a host and tries to fly towards it, but Sinestro cuts him off in midair, saying this is his destiny and attacks Jordan before he flies towards the white entity, bonding with it and becoming the first White Lantern. Foul Sinestro of Korugar, your destiny awaits. The final issue opens up to Sinestro bringing it to Necron. He rips the villain's heart out, but an undead man picks up Necron's scythe, says Necron Rise, and becomes Necron. At the same time, the lantern cavalry arrives, and every lantern in the universe opens up on Necron until Gardner is possessed by Boston Brand. And Brand tells Hal Jordan, "There's only one way to end this. They have to bring William Hand back to life and sever Necron's connection to this world." Remember, Black Hand is Necron's entity, like Parallax or Ion or the Butcher. It's wild, I know. Sinestro is ripped from the Entity of Life by Necron, and Hal is up next. He flies into it and doesn't just gain the white life for himself. He gives every hero who's ever risen from the dead a ring from Superman to the Green Arrow. They all in turn bring Black Hand back to life. He immediately vomits a white ring that flies through Necron's heart and into the Black Power Battery. The Black Power Battery is the dead remains of the Anti-Monitor and he comes back to life, bursting forth from the battery. And he is pissed. He attacks Necron who, finding the villain useless, teleports the Anti-Monitor back to his own universe. While this is happening, Black Hand is still vomiting up rings, rings that slide onto the fingers of hero and villain alike and brings them all back from the dead. Maxwell Lord, Firestorm, Captain Boomerang, Jade, Hawk, Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Hawkman and Girl, Deadman and Osiris, the adopted son of Black Adam. No, I take great pride in not having to Google a single person in these two panels. Mira sees Aquaman, she's overcome by love and her red ring shatters. Now without a heart, she goes into cardiac arrest But Carol Ferris saves her using the power of love and Saint Walker uses his power to reverse the effects of the Red Ring. Hawkgirl has come back to life with all of her memories of the past lives she's led and the love she has for Hawkman and the two share a passionate kiss. Firestorm splits into Jason and Ronnie and they want nothing to do with each other, Jason especially because Ronnie turned Jen into salt, if you remember that happened. And scarily, Maxwell Lord, the man who caused the OMAC project and Infinite Crisis, has returned. Guy Garner wraps him up saying he doesn't know why the villain is here, but Max forces Guy to release him, his nose bleeding showing he's controlling the hero's mind, and blends into the shadows getting out of there. Jade, Alan Scott's daughter, is back, and she runs up and kisses Kyle Rayner, full on in the mouth, right in front of Kyle's girlfriend, Green Lantern, and daughter of Sinestro, Soranik Natu. Il-Baw Thawne, Reverse Flash, escapes before Flash can grab him, and Captain Boomerang tries to hurl one of his namesakes at Flash, who failing to catch Thawne, knocks Digger Harkness, boomerang out with one punch dead man alive again pulls off his mask and is horrified he does not want to be alive dead man really enjoys being dead you can tell because his superhero name is dead man while saint walker notices not only black hand but indigo one's tribe of compassion are gone and we see that indigo one's tribe has retreated to their planet with a chained black hand who is looking positively lobotomized and carrying a compassion staff and chains the purple symbol of the tribe blazing in his eyes The final panel in this issue, we see a crater in the middle of a back road, and at its center, a white lantern sits glowing. And that's where we are. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. So the credits on this one, the editors on this one are Eddie Berganza and Rex Ogle. The cover was done by Tyler Kirkham, Matt Banning, and Nave Rufino. The story and art is a whole host of people. We have Jeff Johns, Peter Tomasi, Kroll, Van Skyver, Ivan Reyes, Bennis, Gleason, Schlagman, Fabuk, Love, and Booth. We have Inks by Sandra Hope. Colors by Bucciolato, and Letters by Swans. So the cover of this one is busy, but not in a bad way. In the background, we see a large open book with wizard browning pages. And characters are literally leaping from the pages. Dominating the center of the page is Donna Troy in her black universe cat suit, along with silver gauntlets wrapping her forearms and biceps, and a silver belt wrapping her waist. Donna Troy is a gorgeous woman, and that beauty is lessened by the strange black rot running through her veins. she got her left hand raised as she's flying towards stage left from the book. Beside her, we see the scarecrow. He's wearing his signature straw man hat and scarecrow mask with noose to match, but instead of his usual scarecrow costume that is always literally stuffed with hay, he has on a Sinestro Corps outfit. It's yellow and black with the Sinestro Corps symbols sitting at the center of his chest. Behind him, yellow scarecrow constructs fly up from the pages of the book. Beneath Scarecrow, we see a hooded ragman pushing from the page, his patchwork costume in various shades of green. And to his stage left, we see Animal Man in a white lantern costume, his usual blue and orange costume gone, replaced with the white of the life corps. And finally, trapped inside of the pages of the book and pressed up against the pages as if it's glass, is Lisa Drack. I think this is an okay cover. I feel like the character should be smaller and the book larger, because Animal Man in particular suffers from having Donna Troy and Scarecrow dominate the page. But everyone is beautifully drawn. Let's get inside. The story opens to two hands and Shadow reaching for an open book. It's cover facing us with the Black Lantern Corps insignia on it person reaching for it is Lisa Drack. She gives us a little of her history saying her home was on court in the Antimatter universe where she spent her days happily chained to the book of parallax and forcing new recruits to face their fear. Next we see Lisa with a look of panic on her face as she floats suspended in air all around her pages of the Book of the Black with different images of the events of Blackest Night, mainly the Black Lantern Army, Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, Wonder Woman, etc. Lisa says she asks every recruit one simple question, what are you afraid of? She says she's asked herself that question a thousand times over ever since. We realize Lisa Drack is swimming through the pages of this book towards the cover of it Not outside of it about to pick it up, she's inside of it, trapped, swimming through the pages. Drax says she found herself a prisoner on Ower, where the Green Lantern Corps resides, and they ripped her book of Parallax from her. She goes on to say that when she realized her answer to her question, what does she fear? Her answer was, the unknown. Without the book of Parallax, her precognition powers didn't work anymore. But Drax says she was lucky because she found a new book, the Book of the Black, The Book of the Undead. She says it was all hers until Scar, the guardian of the Black Lantern Corps, trapped her inside. And we see Lisa Drack in a black hood and barely anything else on her knees, hacking up black blood onto a giant Blake page in pain. As behind her, Necron's undead army, Martian Manhunter in the lead, racist toward her. In the final panel, undead hands wrap around her face and she screams. Page 4 opens with a deleted scene from Blackest Night and we see Ragman leaping from a red brick building in the Gotham Twilight as an unknown narrator speaks about him. They say he lives in self-imposed poverty and clings to the Kabbalah as if religion can do anything to cure society of inequality. They say despite what everyone believes, there's no equality, only a food chain. Ragman lands on trash in a back alley in the next panel as someone from off-panel tells him that he may be the jailer of the souls in his patchwork suit, but that person That person and their team, they're the masters of those souls. And we see it's none other than Black Hand himself standing on a nearby rooftop, staring down, clutching the skull of Bruce Wayne in his left hand. He smiles at Ragman before five black power rings shoot from over his shoulder towards the hero. Black Hand thinks Ragman is no different from the others that the voice in his head sends him after. And we get three great panels back to back. First, how Jordan locked in battle with Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Next, Boston Bran lying on the ground above his grave in a fetal position, clutching his own shoulders in his classic leotard with high red collar. We see Crispus Allen Specter, undead and gigantic, attacking members of the shadow Pack, Blue Devils, Atena, and Phantom Stranger at a graveyard, pounding the ground with a mighty fist. Black Hand approaches Ragman in the alley as the Black Rings surround the hero. A disembodied voice says Rise, and every soul in Ragman's patchwork suit is ripped from him, leaving him literally naked and surrounded by the undead, on his knees in garbage. That's a bad break, as Black Hand looks on with a wicked smile and evil gleam in his eyes. We get another deleted scene in Blackest Night next. This time we're in Keystone City, Flash's City, and we see a group of rogues calling themselves the Rainbow Raiders. The original Rainbow Raider is one villain but they've decided to make this a team sport. I didn't do a spotlight on them because there is literally maybe two sentences about this supervillain team everywhere, but we see them here in a very expensive looking room. There's artwork on the wall, a porcelain statue of a horse rearing up on its hind legs, diamonds and pearls stuffed in candy bowls. These Rainbow Raiders could be some major players. One of them in what looks like a robe is sitting on the couch pressed against the far wall. A woman with a green poison ivy costume and leaves for hair is sitting with her back to us and her legs crossed. The rest of the Raiders are standing, and we do have the Rainbow here. Red is standing with his back to the window as rain pours from outside. Orange is standing beside him, fire blazing from the top of his head. Pink is standing beside him. Each of the Raiders is holding a small glass in their hands. One of them, a burly guy in a full body sky blue suit opposite Red, is holding his glass high saying they never even got to face the Flash. Red says you know we wouldn't have one if we faced them anyway. We chose one of the most disrespected villains and split his gear. He says they're lucky because it'd be only a matter of time before they wound up in Iron Heights if the Flash did catch them. Iron Heights is keystone supervillain prison, so Red is right. I like the Rainbow Raider, but if you're splitting up his gear hoping to be a supervillain, you're going to jail, because I've seen that gear. In the next panel, Red raises a toast, saying that the dead are taking over the earth and cheers to being on the winning side. The group clink their glasses and all go bottoms up. Five shot glasses fall to the floor and shatter, and every Rainbow Raider falls to the floor after the glasses, dead. As the flash says from off panel that only the dead with emotional ties to the heroes are coming back to life. These Rainbow Raiders just committed group suicide, hoping to come back as Black Lanterns and now they won't. What Achilles say in the Odyssey? It's better to be alive without glory than dead with it. I hope they learned the lesson. We turn the page and we're on... The infinity, infinity, page, infinity Page. Page 8. Just in time to see a handwriting the word hero in red with a paintbrush on a white banner. We're in San Diego, California at the home of Animal Man. This story is called The Evolution of Species. The banner is now hanging over the awning to his backyard and we see it's Hero's Day and his family is celebrating. His wife Ellen in a purple tank top and SJB's is sitting at their picnic table with their daughter Maxine, who's wearing a purple shirt as well and overalls, clutching a teddy bear while his son Cliff plays with their white dog in front of a tire swing. All of them are gingers. I love Buddy Baker's family. Cliff walks over to the grill and wonders why all the burgers on it are veggie burgers. Ellen says he knows his father doesn't eat meat and Cliff says, doesn't mean I can't and he's not wrong. But when in Rome, Cliff, when in Rome, Cliff, annoyed, acts of Starfire is coming to their barbecue. And Ellen says no before spotting her husband floating above the roof of their house and telling him to get down from there. And we see a great panel of Animal Man in his blue and goldenrod costume floating down to meet his family. They do a group hug before Maxine looks up at the sky and asks if all the birds are flying south for the winter. Animal Man stares up at the afternoon sky now, blackened with birds, and tells his daughter, that's not south. He thinks he's been having a bad feeling all day that the animals want to escape something and tells Ellen to take their children and get in the house. Ellen rushes inside with Maxine, but their dog Skipper is an animal, and he wants to escape now too, so he bolts for the front yard. Cliff follows, and Animal Man follows Cliff. It's a chase train. They get to the front of the house, and Animal Man grabs Cliff, who has tears falling from his eyes. I'd probably be crying too if hundreds of animals were rushing towards my house. A GD menagerie! It's in the week! But something's wrong. All these animals are extinct. Animal Man is staring down wooly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and moose with 10 feet wide antlers. He wonders why this always happens to him, but I'm going to guess it's in the name, and immediately leaps into action putting himself between his kid and the danger. He summons the strength of a polar bear and the savagery of a Bengal tiger attacking the undead animals as they rush towards him and he starts laying waste to the undead stampede. Separated from Cliff, who's surrounded by snow leopards and saber-toothed tigers, Animal Man taps into the speed of a cheetah and races to him before diving onto Cliff and turning his skin as strong as a rhinoceros hide. When he decides to tap into the animal's mind and take them over, he hears Necron in his head, and we get a beautiful splash page of Buddy screaming with his hands to his skull as Necron's skeletal face looms large above him, telling him he's failed as a protector of animals and asking why he's still alive. When the pain stops, Animal Man is on his knees, surrounded by the bones of the extinct animals in the shape of the Black Lantern symbol. But he knows what he has to do. We see him flying in with the group of heroes who bring the fight to Necron, Blackhand, and their undead army. He's flying in next to his friend and ally, Starfire, and asking why must she be so beautiful. He thinks her scent intoxicates him as the two fight side by side, putting down the undead. Starfire can probably sense Buddy's ogling and not focusing because she asked him how his family's doing. He says they're well but they miss her and calls himself stupid thinking his family's home worrying and he's here drooling. I think it's stupid you're surrounded by zombies and drooling. But I digress. The final panel here, we see Batman leaping behind Buddy, who's head a zombie and vomits a black power ring at Animal Man. The ring says Buddy never escaped death, and that Necron allowed his numerous resurrections. 15 opens to a black ring sliding onto Buddy's finger, saying, Rise, as Starfire looks on and Buddy goes dead. He rounds on Starfire and begins hitting on her in the most debased ways. He says the king of the jungle is going to show her a damn good time, and tackles her to the ground as lightning flashes behind them. Buddy tries to fight against the black ring in his mind, but it's too strong and his outer self pins Starfire to the ground. And Starfire is showing restraint because Buddy's her friend, but Starfire is a heavy hitter and starting to realize Buddy won't stop, she's about to put him down. The moment before she does, however, a white ring of light flies towards Buddy and slides onto his finger and he's reborn as a white lantern. 16 is a beautiful splash page of Animal Man glowing in his white suit. As the white lights avatar tells Animal Man that he came back because he wanted to, not because of Necron. We get a panel with Buddy and another group hug with his family, this time no costume, followed by a panel of Animal Man racing in front of a horde of animals. We see golden strands of DNA up close next as the entity tells him he's still evolving. Next, we see a chimp evolving into man with Animal Man being at the end of the line. It's a great panel. The entity tells Animal Man to accept his duties as the animal kingdom's avatar before it's too late and extinction comes. The final panel, we see Superman's cape, Batman's cowl, and Green Lantern's power battery at the center of an apocalyptic scene. Meanwhile, back at the Baker residence, the family is watching the news Wondering if Buddy's okay when he enters the house holding Skipper. This family is all about the group hug and we get another one here before Cliff and Maxine head up the stairs telling Buddy that he smells like poo. Buddy grabs Ellen, gives her a kiss and tells her I love you my queen. She tells him she loves him too but he needs to shower because he stinks. Animal Man standing in the bathroom says there will be no more observing. That now he controls his destiny. We're in San Francisco next at Titan Tower where members of the team are in their memorial hall paying homage to the friends they've lost. Cassie, Wonder Girl, is lamenting the fact that members seem to always be dying and Donna Troy tells her their life is a battlefield so death is inevitable. Cassie asks Donna how she keeps going and Donna replies that if they stopped fighting, what would the world be then? Donna says she's a warrior and reminds Cassie that Cassie is too. We turn the page and we're in the thick of Blackest Night following Donna Troy and the Titans as they lay waste to the undead horde. Donna, bit on the neck by one of the undead, says she can feel death beginning to corrupt her. Having died before, she says death may take me again today, but Necron will not. She falls to her knees in pain before leaping up and tackling Wonder Girl, telling her they have to stop her because she's losing control. Titans surround Donna Troy on the battlefield and Wonder Girl tells them to hold her. Donna says she won't fight, but Cassie knows she will. She orders Dove to bathe down the in light, and Dove does, and they are just about to exorcise the darkness when Necron's Batman gives Donna a ring and the Titans are blasted backwards. Wonder Girl is first on her feet, and she tries to wake Dove, telling her they need to save Donna, but Donna says she's fine. Surrounded by the undead horde that has claimed her idol, her boyfriend, and her mentor, Cassie lowers her head and wonders how she can possibly fight them all as the rain pours down on her. But when she looks up, There's an angry fire in her blue eyes as she thinks she can fight them because she's a warrior. And warriors fight to the bitter end. Our next story, Blackest Nightmare, opens with Jonathan Crane, aka the Scarecrow, pumping his fear gas all through an abandoned warehouse where he has people trapped in glass prisons to study the effects. As he's torturing these people, we get a flashback to the Scarecrow being teased and called Ichabod from the Sleepy Hollow books because his last name is Crane. Scarecrow says he read those books and fell in love with the power of fear, studied it, and got his revenge on all those people laughing and we see him working through the panels first reading the book then in the lab experimenting and finally as the scarecrow gassing a victim before we come back to the present and he screams at the woman he's just gassed telling her he wants to feel fear too that not even the undead can frighten him anymore he rips his mask from his face and holding a pitchfork says he's going to leave a trail of bodies across gotham And when Batman comes to stop the Scarecrow, Scarecrow will feel fear. He's about to skewer the woman with a pitchfork when a yellow ring of the Sinestro Corps slides onto his finger and he's teleported into a forest. He hears the clop of a horse's hooves in the distance and his heart starts beating rapidly. His mouth goes dry, his breathing shallow. He screams, yes, before seeing the dark knight with a literal bat's head for a face wielding a yellow construct sword. Batman-faced Batman stares down at Crane, shouting his name, and Crane, terrified, turns to run. But the forest has become bramble, and Crane trips right before being swallowed up by the bramble before he shoots out from it and back into a Gotham City alley. The Bat-Faced Batman corners him here and grabbing Crane's head, pumps yellow light into Scarecrow's face before vanishing. We see Scarecrow on the floor for a moment before he stands and constructs a yellow pitchfork and a murder of crows above him laughing maniacally as his Sinestro Corps uniform forms around him. The next story is called An Incident on Corrigar, and it opens with the Sinestro Corps receiving a directive from Fal Sinestro himself that for the foreseeable future, the Yellow Light and the Green Light are allies as Yellow Lanterns battle against the Black core above Korrigar. We see Karu Sil, Sinestro Corps member of 2814, a short distance away from the fight led by her pack of alien wolf constructs. Able to communicate with the constructs, one of them asks if she is afraid, and she says, no, we're not afraid, we're fear itself. She lands and, raising her ring, walks forward, telling whoever she's sensing to show themselves or dread the consequences. Carol's eye narrows in shock as someone from off panel says, Daughter. We turn the page and see that the yellow constructs of her alien wolves that are always with her are based off of the three creatures standing in front of her. She calls them Fathers Three and falls to her knees, wondering if they're real. They tell her they're realer than the constructs she creates in Mimicry and order her to remove them. They tell her that she's been sad and alone but she deserves it for trading their lives for hers. Carol says she didn't do that and would gladly give her life for them. The Space will say they'll accept the offer and attack her. Carol fights back telling her pack they don't attack their own but they tell her she was only a part of the pack in case they faced a lean winter and call her a burden and weak. And Carol says, fine, kill me then, and lies down defeated. Before her pack can devour her, however, a Green Lantern, Vyreal of Sector 1013, attacks them, saving her life. When Carol refuses to fight back, Vyril tells her they aren't her pack, that this is what Black Lanterns do, and they need to be destroyed. His talk convinces Carol, and together, they obliterate the undead pack. Vireal tells Carol they should have a look at her wounds Bakaru, having lost her family a second time, rounds on Vyvril and incinerates his face with an up-close blast of energy before reconstructing her wolf pack with a power ring and flying off with tears in her eyes. And we turn the page and we're back with Lisa Drack, still tumbling through these stories of Blackest Night, as she says she was once the page-turner and now just a prisoner to the book, that it allows her to fly to the surface time and again before pulling her back down into its depths. She reaches out a ringed hand towards the cover as she sucked back into the depths of the black book before a hooded figure reaches into the pages from the outside and, grabbing her by the hand, pulls her from the book, finally freeing her. The entity, whoever it is, is wearing a hooded, tattered cloak with bandaged hands and tells Drac they're about to enter a new epoch. His epoch. Drac asks if the entity is going to need a new bookkeeper, and the reply she gets is yes. The final caption box reads, It begins. And we're out! I have to admit that I forgot this wasn't a one story tale when it came up in the random number generator. I don't think I'd do a comic like this going forward if I knew. It jumps all over the place and I'm sure that adds a level of confusion not necessarily handled even with such a gigantic where are you here section. Nevertheless, thank you so much for listening. I hope you had a blast because I truly did getting to visit some of the more obscure moments from one of DC's largest events, Blackest Night. Thank you so much for being a patron. Because of you, I get to do this, and I never take that for granted. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power. You know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.